thinking to myself how I need God even to preach a message of the gospel. No matter how much studying you do, you need God. And you need God to have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying, right? Amen? We need God constantly, whether we're preaching, whether we're listening, whether we're working, no matter what we do, we need God. And that's a good prayer. Lord, I need you. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John, chapter 18. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. If you're following the Gospel of John, as I've been going through, you know how long I've been on John? Six years already. Six years. We probably have about a year and a half left. And we'll finish. And I started with John chapter 2. You could say, well, why didn't you start with 1? Well, I didn't know I was preaching through the whole Gospel of John. So I started with John chapter 2. I was going to preach through the wedding at Cana when Jesus did his first miracle. And I loved it so much. And I got out of it so much that I said, you know what? I'm going to preach through this book. So when we get to the end, in about a year, year and a half, say, that's because I'm only preaching once a month, right? But when we get to the end of it, <clears throat> I'm going to go back to chapter 1. I'm going to preach through chapter 1. And I think that will really tie the whole book together. Because if you ever read, read John chapter 1, the prologue, it's about Jesus Christ, the incarnate Word of God. <clears throat> anyway, we're up to the chapter 18. Jesus finished his personal ministry to his disciples. He finishes his praying to his father, and now it's time for his death. But first, he must face the humiliation of betrayal, arrest, trial, conviction at the hands of sinful men. What we're going into now is the bones of Isaiah 53 with flesh on it. Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus is now approaching the pinnacle of his ministry. This is the pinnacle of his ministry. This is why he came, to die. This was the fulfillment of of that great prophetic word God gave to Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. You're in my freedom. Our freedom is now in sight. As Christ enters what we know, and what we know as his passion. This is passion week. Jesus is going into that dark tunnel of suffering. But we see the light at the end of it, don't we? Let's turn to John 18, the first 12 verses. <clears throat> when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, 
For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So we asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was, for, was to fulfill the word that had been spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having his sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant's ear and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in, in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Let's pray. Father, what can I say but open up our hearts and minds to see these events that led up to Christ's crucifixion, that it wasn't just about his crucifixion, it's the events also that led up to his crucifixion. Give us understanding, give us application tonight in Christ's name we pray, amen. In his book, Revelation Within by Dwight Edwards, Dwight Edwards was one of the descendants from Jonathan Edwards, he says this, In 1829, a man named George Wilson was arrested for robbery and murder in a U.S. mail holdup. He was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death by hanging. Some friends intervened on his behalf and were able to obtain his pardon from President Andrew Jackson. But Wilson refused it, saying he wanted to die. Well, the sheriff didn't know what to do. How do you execute a man officially pardoned? An appeal was made to the president who perplexed turned the matter over to the Supreme U.S. Court. Chief Justice John Marshall gave this ruling. A pardon is a piece of paper, the value of which depends on its acceptance by the person implicated. Thus, George Wilson was executed while his pardon lay on the sheriff's desk. Now, this story doesn't really tell us why he could have been free, but why he decided to die. I mean, maybe it was because he couldn't bear the guilt. He he knew that he murdered someone. He knew that he robbed banks. But maybe that was the answer. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But Jesus Christ was betrayed and arrested while at a moment's notice he could have appealed to God the Father and had more than 12 legions of angels at his disposal for his freedom. But he didn't. Unlike George Wilson, who probably wanted to die because he couldn't bear the guilt and the shame of murder, Jesus Christ did it for a specific reason. He willfully allowed the betrayal and arrest in accordance with his Father's will for your freedom. We like to think of Jesus as Lord when he returns in power and glory, right? I mean, he is Lord when he comes you know, in his power and glory to judge the heavens, to judge the nations and his enemies. But Jesus was Lord, always was Lord, always will be Lord, even in his betrayal and his arrest. 
I want you to think about that tonight. That his lordship in this passage, in his betrayal and arrest, then in his trial, his conviction, crucifixion, and resurrection. He never stopped being Lord. My proposition tonight is Jesus' lordship in his betrayal and arrest was another step closer to your freedom and to my freedom. And there's three points I want to bring to you tonight. Point one, Jesus demonstrates his lordship in facing his enemies for your freedom. Point two will be Jesus demonstrates his lordship with power and authority for your freedom. And then the last point, Jesus demonstrates his lordship by fulfilling his father's plan for your freedom. Point one, Jesus demonstrates his lordship in facing his enemies for your freedom. Verses one through six, actually one and two, John tells us that when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book Kidron, Brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. You see, Jesus, once again, finished his public ministry, finished his private ministry to his disciples. He first finished his public ministry, where the nation of Israel rejected him. Now he finished his private ministry to his disciples, and now he finishes praying, and now goes with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden. Now, John doesn't name the garden, but Matthew and Mark do. It was Gethsemane. John also does not give us the account of Jesus' prayer to his father concerning his struggle and the agony in the garden of Gethsemane. Remember when Jesus was praying and he said, Father, if there's any other way, remove this cup. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And it says that he was in such agony that his sweat was like drops of blood. That was part of the passion of Christ that we often miss. Amazingly, disobedience cast the first Adam out of the garden. But the last Adam, Jesus Christ, obediently went into the garden to restore us back to the garden. Dr. Warren Wesby says it well. He says, human history began in a garden. And the first sin of man was committed in that garden. The first Adam disobeyed God and was cast out of the garden. But the last Adam was obedient as he went into the garden of Gethsemane. In a garden, the first Adam brought sin and death to mankind. But Jesus, by his obedience, brought righteousness and life to all who will trust him. He was obedient unto death, even death of the cross. History will one day end in another garden, the heavenly city that John describes in Revelation. In that garden, there will be no more death and no more curse. The river of the water of life will flow ceaselessly and the tree of life will produce bountiful fruit. Eden was the garden of disobedience and sin. Gethsemane was the garden of obedience and submission and heaven shall be the eternal garden of delight and satisfaction to the glory of God. Amazing that we lost our standing with God in the garden and Jesus was purchasing it back for you in the garden 2,000 years ago. Back in our text, Jesus frequently met in this garden. It was a walled garden, which was probably owned by a rich person who was very sympathetic towards Jesus' ministry and would 
probably let Jesus and his disciples use it. Jesus went there often to be alone in solitude, in prayer. And Judas fully knew it. He knew that Jesus met there. And Jesus knew that Judas knew and went there anyway. The hour had come and Jesus allowed himself to be betrayed and arrested. Jesus Christ is Lord and had full control of his destiny. Make no mistake about that. God's whole plan of Christ's death was foreordained from all eternity. This was not an afterthought for God. We read that in Isaiah and Acts and throughout the Gospels and the rest of Scripture. Every event in Christ's life was planned from all eternity, including his betrayal and his arrest. No one was taking Christ's life from him. He was freely laying it down. John 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because what? I lay my, down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Discharge I have received from my Father. So don't ever, please don't ever think or make the mistake that somehow Jesus was a victim. We watch Easter movies and we cry, poor Jesus, poor Jesus, look what they're doing to him. We let our emotions take over. He's not the victim. We are. Remember when Jesus was carrying his cross and the women were following him and weeping after him? What did Jesus say? Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. In other words, Weep for your sin and the coming judgment. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, in the Beatitudes, he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus never asked or wanted sympathy. He never, he never did. Another thing I find fascinating <clears throat> is Jesus' betrayal <clears throat> is the same area where David was betrayed. King David, the book Kidron, is a deep, dark ravine to the northeast of Jerusalem uh, through which this small brook would flow during the rainy season, the water. And they couldn't cross it during, during the rainy season. But Jesus crossed it because it wasn't the rainy season, so it was dry. And David fled from Jerusalem or from um, his son Absalom from Jerusalem in Absalom's rebellion, if you remember that in Second Samuel, David's friend and counselor Ahithophel betrayed him and said and, and, and sided with with Absalom, who rebelled against his father David. And here we see, uh, two thousand years later, or actually a thousand years later from that time, David was betrayed by Absalom. A thousand years later, now Jesus is betrayed. And Jesus with his disciples crossed the Kidron after the Last Supper on the way to Gethsemane where there was a garden and it was there Jesus was betrayed, the same place that David was betrayed. David was betrayed there and Jesus was betrayed there. The lesser David and the greater David. And of course, Christ's betrayal was the ultimate betrayal. You can't 
compare David's betrayal. David was a sinful man, was betrayed, but Christ did nothing, had no sin in his life, and yet was betrayed by one of his own, Judas. Jesus taught Judas. Jesus ate with Judas. Jesus ate with Judas. Jesus protected Judas. Jesus offered him eternal life. Jesus, Judas saw Jesus do all these miracles. He saw him open blind eyes. He saw him unstop deaf ears. He saw the mute speak. He saw paralytics healed. He saw the dead raised back to life. He saw Jesus feeding the multitudes with five loaves of of bread and two small fish. He did nothing but good to Judas. But sin and Satan was lodged in Judas' heart and willfully betrayed Christ. Once again, Jesus was in full control of his circumstances. Does that mean Judas wasn't responsible for his action? No, of course not. Jesus said in Matthew and Mark concerning Judas, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And let me give a parathetical warning here. It would be far better for anyone who doesn't repent and trust Christ for their salvation if they had never been born. And if this speaks to you, the Lord is calling for you to repent and to trust in His Son. And in doing so, grace and mercy will be lavished upon you. Back to Judas. He knew exactly what he was doing. God used him as a pawn in his hand to fulfill his purpose in the redemption of lost souls. And we have trouble with that sometimes, but that's the truth. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility flow parallel through the whole scriptures, all of scriptures. You can't reconcile the two, but the Bible teaches both of them, so we accept it. And Judas went to the chief priests and asked them what they would give him if he delivered Jesus over to them. And you know what they agreed? 30 pieces of silver. You know what 30 pieces of silver is? That's the price of a slave. That's what they thought of Jesus. And Judas sought an opportunity to betray Jesus into their hands when there would be no crowd. Why? Because that was Passover time. great multitude of people would be there. There could have been up to a million people there. They didn't want to riot. They knew the people still held Jesus in high honor. And to try to arrest him in that, in, in that kind of crowd would have caused a, a riot. But he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. It was diabolical. Both Luke and John tells us that Satan had entered Judas. Judas was now controlled by Satan. Satan hates God and hates everything and everyone that belongs to God. But what Satan, what Judas, the chief priests, and all who oppose God meet for evil, God works for good. And we're going to see that. Make no mistake about that. If you're a child of God, he will make all things work for your good. Yes, even your failures. Isn't that good news? I should have heard a loud amen from everybody. That is good news that God even takes. If you're a Christian, God could even take 
your failures and weaknesses and sin and use it for his glory and your, your purpose, your good purpose. Verse 3 tells us something very interesting. It says, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Judas guides this band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests with lanterns, weapons. You know, I mean, what were they going after? Luke tells us, <clears throat> excuse me. Luke tells us that there were also chief priests there. So between the band of soldiers, the officers, which were actually temple police, and the chief priests, they may have been from anywhere, now listen to this, anywhere from a few hundred to up to a thousand people who came to arrest one man. <clears throat> and to boot, they came with weapons. They came with weapons. That's a lot of people and weapons to arrest one man. Can sin blind that much that a people can lose sight of reality? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus came. How did he come? As a meek, humble servant, preaching the good news of the kingdom. He went about doing good. He never did harm to anyone. And yet this crowd of soldiers and the temple police and the chief priests came with all this equipment and weapons. And what does Jesus do? He faces them courageously. Verses 4 and 5. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to him, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Now we could look at that and say, All right. So he admitted that that he was... But Three things I want to show you. Real quick. It says in verse 4, Knowing all... That Jesus, knowing all, in other words, this did not take the omniscient God by surprise. He knew this was going to happen. The second thing it says, he came forward. We kind of skip over these things, but think about it. He came forward. He fearlessly, courageously confronted his accusers. And then he said, I am he. He did not deny who he was. Jesus faced his enemies courageously. He went to the very spot he knew he would be betrayed and arrested. And when he was approached, he didn't deny who he was. When I was thinking about this, Daniel came to my mind. Daniel was a high official in the Medo-Persian area under King Darius. And because of his godly integrity... The king wanted to make Daniel the highest in the government, if you remember the story. The officials became very jealous of Daniel because the king was promoting Daniel and not them. And they manipulated the king to establish a ruling saying that no one could pay homage to any god or any man except the king for 30 days because they knew Daniel would not worship the king but God. So what does Daniel do? When he found out about the law that the king passed, he goes directly to his house, kneels in his room, facing the windows towards Jerusalem, towards the temple, and he prays three times a day. And most of you know the rest of the story. He was thrown into the lion's den, but God delivered Daniel by sending the angel, probably a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. 
and shut the mouths of the lions. Daniel went to his room to pray in spite of the ruling, knowing he would be betrayed by his colleagues. Jesus went into the garden, knowing he was going to be betrayed and arrested. In his book, Tortured for Christ, Pastor Richard Wormbrand says, It is strictly forbidden to preach to the other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught during this received doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching, so we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us. So everyone was happy. The following scene happened more times than I can remember. A brother was preaching to the other prisoners when the guard suddenly burst in, surprising him halfway through a phrase. They hauled him down to the corridor, to their beating room. After what seemed an endless beating, they brought him back and threw him bloody and bruised on the prison floor. Slowly, he picked up his battered body, painfully straightened his clothing and said, Now, brethren, where did I leave off when I was interrupted? And he continued his gospel message. I see such a beautiful thing here. Praise God. For godly men and women who know they are going to be betrayed, arrested, and beaten, and possibly killed, but face their accusers courageously anyway. May God help us to become men and women by His grace to face and walk into hostile environments, if necessary, for the sake of the gospel. Have you ever been betrayed by someone who has been very close to you? Probably all of us can raise our hand and say, yes, we did. If so, what was your reaction? Do you try to take matters into your own hands or do you trust in the Lord to work out things in his own time for his glory? That's something we should think about, yes? Christ's betrayal was another step closer to our freedom. Freedom not only from the penalty of sin, not only from the wrath of God, but freedom to face betrayal and arrest and persecution. Now, we don't live with that kind of threat being, of being arrested and killed in America, but it could happen in our lifetime. And we pray that God gives us the grace to face it courageously. Are we ready? Point one, Jesus demonstrates his lordship in facing his enemies for your freedom. Point two, Jesus demonstrates his lordship with power and authority for your freedom. As I said before, Jesus did not deny who he said he was. He said, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. Verse 6 tells us, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. First, I would like you to notice this, that I am he, in the Greek, Egoami, that's what the word is, is not I am he, it's I am. Okay, so what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, I am God. Jesus was claiming divinity as God in Exodus 3.14. We see Moses said to God, if Israel asked me for your name, what name do I tell them? And God said this. He said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent you. So this wasn't just any name he gave. This was a title 
exclusively used by God. And when he said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. It was the power and authority of the name of God that flawed them. It is ludicrous to even entertain the thought for a split second that somehow they fell to the ground by the, not by his power, but by, because they were startled. As some have proposed, some have said that. Some liberal, liberal theologians had said he fell, they fell to the ground because they were startled. But that wasn't. He went to them, he said, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. They weren't startled. He said, I am. And they fell to the ground. It is the same power that when Christ comes back, will smite the nations with his word who oppose him. Revelation 19.15 From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. It is the same power and authority from his word that said, let there be light. And there was light. God created the heavens and earth by the power of his word. When Christ speaks, there is full power and authority. When Christ speaks, it is God speaking. What floored the crowd was the power of God that came from Christ's mouth and nothing else. I like what Rudolf Schnackenberg says. He's a New Testament scholar. He points out the powerlessness of Jesus' enemies when confronted with the power of God. When they were confronted with the power of God, they drew back and fell to the ground. This wasn't slain in the spirit as some have proposed. This was the power of God flooring Christ's enemies. And Christ's word is just as powerful and authoritative as it was back then. His word is living and powerful. God's word still convicts and penetrates the heart, knocking sinful men down to their knees. I still experience God's humbling word in my life and making me fall to my knees and crying out, Jesus, you are Lord. When I read his word or listen to it taught and preached, my heart is convicted, warmed, and encouraged. And Jesus still demonstrates his lordship with power and authority through his word in your life. And we have that power and authority when we preach his word. It doesn't mean preaching from the pulpit. When you go and preach to your neighbor, the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you go and talk to the people in the marketplace. When you go and talk to the people wherever. You still have that power and authority. It's not our power. It's not our authority. It's his. When we preach his word, it convicts lost sinners. The Holy Spirit will take his word from our lips and penetrate sinful hearts and many times will floor them. When Jonathan Edwards preached his famous sermon in 1741, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, as he was preaching with God's power and authority, Jonathan Edwards was interrupted many times before finishing the sermon by people moaning and crying, What shall I do to be saved? Listen, hear me. Don't ever... Be ashamed or fearful to speak the word of God. It's the power and authority of the Holy Spirit behind that. We don't have to fear anyone. 
Even if people reject the word of God, listen to me. Even if they reject the word of God, you speak to them. When they stand before God, that same word that you spoke to them, that they rejected, will remind them they rejected Christ and will be brought to their knees, but it will be far too late. Listen what Jesus said. In case you think I'm being harsh here, listen what Jesus said in John 12, 48. He said, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge them on the last day. So when you speak to someone, the word of God, and they reject it, don't worry or don't be ashamed. Because that word is still very powerful. And we want it to floor them when we speak it to them. We want them to, their knees to bow before God and say, God, I need you. And his mercy and grace will fall upon them. But if they reject them, that very word you spoke to them is going to floor them in the judgment. Back to our text. After they get up, Jesus again takes the lead and asks them, whom do you seek? And again they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Why did he ask them twice? And I believe the first time was to show them that they were powerless and he was allowing them to arrest them. And the second time was to secure the freedom of the disciples. Let's read verses 8 and 9. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost one. Now we see Jesus in the midst of betrayal and arrest. It's just like Jesus, not concerned for himself, right? He's concerned for his disciples. They had their orders to arrest Jesus, not his disciples. And Jesus let them know about it. He was saying, in a nutshell, he's saying, you have orders to arrest me. Carry out your orders, but let these go. See, Jesus knew that they did not have the orders to arrest his disciples. Jesus, the good shepherd, was protecting his sheep. He does not lose one that the Father had given him. John 17, 12 said, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So I know right away everybody thinks, well, he did lose one. He lost Judas. No, he didn't lose Judas, because first of all, Judas was not one of the them that the Father had given him. Judas was lost because, not because Jesus lost him, but that the scriptures would be fulfilled. God used him for the betrayal. Jesus knew all along, Judas, Judas was a false disciple, he said it in John 6, but was used to fulfill the plan of redemption. John 6.39, Jesus says it again. And he says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise him up on the last day. You see, Jesus' own prophetic words were fulfilled. I shall lose nothing. Jesus' betrayal and arrest not only protected his disciples' from disciples freedom, but protects your freedom as well. Because you know why? It led to his death and resurrection. If he, didn't be, if he wasn't betrayed, he wasn't arrested, it wouldn't have led to his death, and without his death, you and I would have no freedom. 
Point three. Jesus demonstrates his lordship by fulfilling his father's plan for your freedom. Let's read verses 10 and 12. 10 to 12. Then Simon Peter, having his sword, drew it back and struck the high priest's servant's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Here goes impetuous impetuous Peter again. Remember? Lord, I will die. They may not, but I will die with you. And Jesus said, really, Peter? Really? The cock is going to not crow until you have denied me three times. So Peter was very outspoken. He was courageous, but in a negative sense. And Luke tells us, John doesn't tell us, but Luke tells us that when the disciples saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And Peter, not waiting for the answer, of course, Peter was very impetuous, he, he pulls out a sword, which was probably a small dagger, and struck the high priest's servant's ear and cut it off. Ouch. Luke and John identify the servant as Malchus, who we don't know much about. The Bible really doesn't talk much about him. But if we stop and think about Peter's actions, we would come to the conclusion that it was ridiculous what Peter did. Hundreds of soldiers and a crowd of people and Peter, do you really think you're going to stop the crowd from arresting Jesus with a Boy Scout knife? Peter was slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had said. It was necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory. Peter really thought he can help Jesus out. He did. Let's not be too hard on Peter. There are times when we try to help out God. There are times in our prayers when we talk to God as if he doesn't know something and we are enlightening him and we are there to inform him how to help us in our particular situation. God, if you give me this, or if you heal me of this, I can serve you better. No, that's the very opposite at times why God doesn't give you this or heal you of that. The the lack of certain things will in reality help you serve him better. Imagine if God healed Johnny, Johnny Erickson Tata. Johnny Erickson Tata was a quadriplegic, became that way in a diving accident in the Chesapeake Bay, and went to all kinds of prayer meetings to be healed, wanted to be healed, I'm sure. She questioned God, thinking she knew better than God, but God didn't heal her. God did not heal her. She would not have a worldwide ministry today that helps millions of people if God healed her. But God didn't heal her because he saw what's what was best. And if you ever heard Johnny Erickson Todd's testimony, it'll bring you to tears. Our sister Mary is at a con- well, just went to a conference and she saw her the other day and heard her testimony and she said, she sent me a text that said, I should never complain again. What am I telling you? Put away your sword and let God determine what direction he will give you for your life. I'm going to be honest here. If you think you know better than God what you need for your life. 
You will be spinning your wheels for the rest of your life. And I see believers all the time who can't accept God's plan for their lives. And years later, guess what? They're still spinning their wheels. I'm not kidding around. I see Christians going over the same problems over and over and over because they cannot accept God's plan for their life. Surrender. Put your sword back in its sheath. Surrender. Let God deal with you the way he wants it. He knows what's best. Learn. Learn. Be learners. Peter eventually did, by the way. I love Peter. He became a pillar in the church and wrote two fantastic epistles. First epistles were the women's group. You're studying that right now, aren't you? Is it not a fantastic epistle? Peter learned. We need to learn. There's always a good reason God does things his way. Back in our text, Jesus tells Peter, no more of this. Put your sword into its sheath. Luke tells us, Jesus touched Malchus' ear and healed him. Jesus was doing good even when he was being arrested. His last miracle before his death, he healed the man's ear. Put it away, Peter. No more of this. Peter's thoughts were not God's thoughts. Peter's ways were not God's ways. How many times our thoughts are not God's thoughts? Our ways are not God's ways. Let us learn. If Jesus wanted to stop the arrest, he certainly didn't need Peter. Matthew 26, verse 52 to 54, Jesus said, Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that it may be so? You know what twelve legions of angels are? That's about 72,000 angels. You know what it says in 2 Kings? When Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, was this proud, arrogant king. You know, God said, I'm going to take you down and your, and your people. You know what he did? He sent one angel and slaughtered 185,000 men. One angel. What is Jesus saying here? 72,000 angels? He didn't need Peter. He said, I could call this unfathomable amount of angels to prevent my arrest. Peter's ways and his thoughts were not God's. You want to know your ways and your, if your thoughts are right? Let it be in line with the word of God. And what was the fulfillment of scripture? That Jesus drinks the cup the Father has given him. What did Jesus mean when he said, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What is the cup and what's in the cup that the Father has given Jesus? Well, obviously Jesus was speaking figuratively. It's a figure of speech. And depending on the context, the cup could be a blessing or a curse. For example, of a blessing, David said in Psalm 23, verse 5, my cup overflows. God's, God filled David's cup with his life, with abundance of good things, like victory, goodness, and mercy. Or the cup of a person's life could be filled with the wrath and judgment because of sin. Isaiah tells us that Jerusalem was experiencing the cup of God's judgment because of their sin. 
Isaiah 51, 17, he says, wake up, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. So we see from scripture that cup is symbolic either for a nation or a person's life. It's either being filled with the blessing of God or wrath or judgment of God. In our text tonight, Jesus is going to drink the cup of God's wrath or the cup of God's judgment for you and for me. Jesus was going to experience the full wrath of God for my sins. He drank the cup that you and I should have drank. Dr. Kent Yu says, Jesus took upon himself our punishment in those hours of darkness on the cross. We could have not paid for our own sins, even if we were punished for them for all eternity. Do you get what he's saying here? That you and I could not pay for our own sins if it took all eternity. Why? Because we sinned against the holy and eternal God. There's no end to God. Jesus could have any time have stopped the passion of his suffering. But he chose not to so that he would fulfill his father's plan for your freedom. The old hymn says it like this. Death and the curse were in the cup. O Christ, t'was full for thee. But thou hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love drank it up. Now blessings draught for me. <clears throat> Let's go to verse 12. tells us, so the band of soldiers and their captains and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Jesus was now arrested and bound since full fury came against the sinless son of God. He was a spotless lamb being led to the slaughter. His lordship allowed each step of his betrayal and arrest happened as the father had planned from all eternity. He was arrested for your freedom and my freedom. I'd like to remember in conclusion three things. Well, I'd like to remember this. Very important. Jesus fulfilled his father's will by facing his enemies with power and authority, which led to his death for your freedom. Never forget this, especially as now we are approaching Easter. Never forget the events that led up to his death, which include his betrayal and arrest. We forget that. We forget this. We, all, we often think of Christ died for me. And that's right. But we also need to remember the events that led up to the cross. Can I go over to you with one minute? He left the glories of heaven. Came down to earth. Put a coat of flesh on. That was humiliating enough. Walked among sinful men was betrayed, was arrested, was tried. These are all humiliating things. Was convicted, was tortured, was nailed to a cross, was taken down from the cross, was buried. Let's not 
forget the events that led up to the cross. Also, never forget that Jesus never stopped being Lord. He was Lord from the time of his incarnation to the time of his resurrection. He was Lord. He always will be Lord. And that is it. He always was, is, and will be Lord. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to get ready for communion and Marty to get ready to lead us in song. And as I end this message and we get ready for the Lord's Supper, let's reflect on Christ's betrayal and rest, which was a filthy, diabolical, evil, wicked sin. And against that dark, evil backdrop, we have this beautiful pearl of salvation. And we can give thanks to Jesus for his death, which is represented in the elements which we are about to receive. And as Marty leads us in song, let's think about Christ's betrayal and his arrest, which led to his death. And and secured for you a great salvation. You know, it really helps us to appreciate the cross that much more when we think of his betrayal and his arrest.